Chapter 22 of Book 1 of Les Miserables, Volume 5 by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Les Miserables, Volume 5 by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book 1, The War Between Four Walls, Chapter 22 foot to foot. When there were no longer any of the leaders left alive except Enjolras and Marius at the two extremities of the barricade, the center, which had so long sustained Kerfrac, Jolet, Bousset, Fouillet, and Combeferre, gave way. The cannon, though it had not effected a practical breach, had made a rather large hollow in the middle of the redoubt. There, the summit of the wall had disappeared before the balls, and had crumbled away, and the rubbish which had fallen now inside, now outside, had, as it accumulated, formed two piles in the nature of slopes on the two sides of the barrier, one on the inside, the other on the outside. The exterior slope presented an inclined plane to the attack. A final assault was there attempted, and this assault succeeded. The mass, bristling with bayonets and hurled forward at a run, came up with irresistible force, and the serried front of battle at the attacking column made its appearance through the smoke on the crested of the battlements. This time it was decisive. The group of insurgents who were defending the center retreated in confusion. Then the gloomy love of life awoke once more in some of them. Many, finding themselves under the muzzle of this forest of guns, did not wish to die. This is the moment when the instinct of self-preservation emits howls, when the beast reappears in men. They were hemmed in by the lofty six-story house which formed the background of their redoubt. This house might prove to be their salvation. The building was barricaded and walled, as it were, from top to bottom. Before the troops of the line had reached the interior of the redoubt, there was time for a door to open and shut. The space of the flash of a lightning was sufficient for that, and the door of that house suddenly opened a crack and closed again instantly was life for these despairing men. Behind this house there were streets, possible flight space. They set to knocking at that door with the butts of their gun, and with kicks, shouting, calling, entreating, wringing their hands. No one opened. From the little window on the third floor, the head of a dead man gazed down upon them. But Enjolras and Marius, and the seven or eight rallied about them, sprang forward and protected them. Enjolras had shouted to the shoulders, Don't advance! and as an officer had not obeyed, Enjolras had killed the officer. He was now in the little inner court of the redoubt, with his back planted against the Corinth building, a sword in one hand, a rifle in the other, holding open the door of the wine-shop which he barred against assailants. He shouted to the desperate men, There is but one open door, this one, and shielding him with his body, and facing an entire battalion alone, he made them pass in behind him. All precipitated themselves thither. Enjolras, executing with his rifle, which he now used like a cane, what single-stick players called a covered rose round his head, leveled the bayonets around and in front of him, and was the last to enter. And then ensued a horrible moment, when the soldiers tried to make their way in, and the insurgents strove to bar them out. The door was slammed with such violence that, as it fell back into his frame, it showed the five fingers of a soldier who had been clinging to it, cut off and glued to the post. Marius remained outside. 
A shot had just broken his collarbone. He felt that he was fainting and falling. At that moment, with eyes already shut, he felt the shock of a vigorous hand seizing him, and the swoon in which his senses vanished, hardly allowing him time for the thought, mingled with the last memory of Cosette, I am taken prisoner, I shall be shot. And Jolas, not seeing Marius among those who had taken refuge in the wine-shop, had the same idea. But they had reached a moment when each man has not the time to meditate on his own death. And Jolas fixed the bar across the door and bolted it, and double-locked it with key and chain, while those outside were battering furiously at it, the soldiers with the butts of their muskets, the sappers with their axes. The assailants were grouped about that door. The siege of the wine-shop was now beginning. The soldiers, we will observe, were full of wrath. The death of the artillery sergeant had enraged them, and then a still more melancholy circumstance. During the few hours which had preceded the attack, it had been reported among them that the insurgents were mutilating their prisoners, and that there was a headless body of a soldier in the wine-shop. This sort of fatal rumor is usually accompaniment of civil wars, and it was a false report of this kind which, later on, produced the catastrophe of Rue Trasnocin. When the door was barricaded, Enjolras said to the others, Let us sell our lives dearly. Then he approached a table on which lay Mabouf and Gavroche. Beneath the black cloth two straight and rigid forms were visible, one large and the other small, and the two faces were vaguely outlined beneath the cold folds of the shroud. A hand projected from beneath the winding sheet and hung near the floor. It was that of the old man. Enjolras bent down and kissed that venerable hand, just as he had kissed his brow on the preceding evening. These were the only two kisses which he had bestowed in the course of his life. Let us abridge the tale. The barricade had fought like the gate of Thebes. The wine-shop fought like a house of Saragossa. These resistances are dogged. No quarter, no flag of truce possible. Men are willing to die, provided their opponent will kill them. When Sauchet says, Capitulate, Palafox replies, After the war with cannon, the war with knives. Nothing was lacking in the capture by assault of the Hachulap wine-shop. Neither paving stones raining from the windows and the roof on the besiegers and exasperating the soldiers by crushing them horribly, nor shots fired from the attic windows and the cellar, nor the fury of the attack, nor finally, when the door yielded, the frenzied madness of extermination. The assailants, rushing into the wine-shop, their feet entangled in the panels of the door which had been beaten in and flung on the ground, found not a single combatant there. The spiral staircase, hewn asunder with the axe, lay in the middle of the tap-room. A few wounded men were just breathing their last. Everyone who was not killed on the first floor, and from there, through the hole in the ceiling, which had formed the entrance of the stairs, a terrific fire burst forth. This was the last of their cartridges. When they were exhausted, when these formidable men on the point of death had no longer either powder or ball, each grasped in his hands two of the bottles which Enjolras had reserved, and of which we had spoken, and held the scaling party in check with these frightfully fragile clubs. They were the bottle of aqua fortis. We relate these gloomy incidents of carnage as they occurred. The besieged man, alas, converts everything into a weapon. Greek fire did not disgrace Archimedes. Boiling pitch did not disgrace Bayard. All war is a thing of terror, and there is no choice in it. The musketry of the besiegers, 
though confined and embarrassed by being directed from below upwards, was deadly. The rim of the hole in the ceiling was speedily surrounded by heads of the slain, whence dripping long, red and smoking streams, the uproar was indescribable. A close and burning smoke almost produced night over this combat. Words are lacking to express horror when it has reached this pitch. There were no longer men in this conflict, which was now infernal. They are no longer giants mashed with the colossi. It resembled Milton and Dante rather than Homer. Demons attacked, specters resisted. It was heroism become monstrous. End of Book One, Chapter 22